Tom wrote me a long one. Okay. See, everyone's saying good looking college. Everyone wants you to go, dude. <laughs> the board of us and just want to be polite about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, probably. Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With This week, welcome to the show. I said that wrong. Yes. It makes it sound like I'm only welcoming them to the show this week, whereas every other week I'm like, ah, piss off, <laughs> which is not true. Just this week. I said it wrong. Yes. Why am I bothering? If I just moved on, nobody would have noticed. No. I drew attention to my error. Yeah. Anyway. Too late now. It's not like I can edit in post. Uh, what have we done this week, Michael? Guardians. Yes. Of the galaxy. Of the globe. Of the globe. That's a different thing entirely. So you didn't see my Facebook status. What, were you, did you mix those two up for humorous G- effect? G-O-T-G was pretty fun. Got a bit dark when Omni-Man killed them all. <laughs> I hope you've not spoiled Invincible for anybody. Oh, it's five, that six years be, old. That would be... Why the apes? 50 years old, dude. Still bugs <laughs> me that the cover of that DVD is the end of the film. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy was alright, wasn't it? It was good. I enjoyed it. Not really enjoyed the best. Not Marvel's best, in my humble opinion, no. Captain America. (coughs) Captain America went sold it. (coughs) But still good. Still very enjoyable. Still very fun. I liked I liked liked Groot. Quite impressive. Oh, we're talking about Guardians of the Galaxy. We may spoil it. Yes. Uh, it was quite impressive how successful it is with such an obscure bunch of characters that are obscure to comic readers yeah it is I mean I've never read any Guardians of the Galaxy apart from that issue of Star Wars we covered yeah that's the only thing I've ever read and so even though I've never read Guardians of the Galaxy you know all the characters yeah and there's quite a lot of Star Wars origin in there from that from that thing that we read yeah and you're watching it going oh Gamora oh Thanos oh Drax the Destroyer oh and you're like but how do I know any of these people? I just think Thanos. That's when I've it, never yeah. read Guardian. But I've read Adam Warlock. Yeah. And there's Avengers that have cropped up in the Avengers and stuff. So you've picked up a lot of it by osmosis. Yeah. I mean, I've never read Rocket Raccoon, apart from the issue of Hulk he was in, I think. Hmm. But other than that, but you know who he is. Yeah. So it all, it all kind of... So we know who they are superficially. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's made such phenomenal bank... Yeah. Given that, yeah, nobody knew who the hell Rocket Raccoon and Groot and Star Lord and Drax were, did they? No. And it's not like they, they had any big name actors in it either. Other than Chris Pratt. Is he a big name actor, really? He was in Everwood. He's in, he's been in quite a lot. What else is he in? But, um, he was in Her. That's what something else I can think of him. He's quite big. I just can't think of things he's been in. He's not a movie star, though, is he? He's primarily a comedy actor, and he carried that with him. Yeah, I thought he did really well. I liked him a lot. I thought he was very good. Very impressed with him. Zoe Zeldana was alright. 
But Vin Diesel was... Vin yeah. Diesel was great! <laughs> and you didn't recognise that it was Bradley Cooper. Yeah. Which was good. Because mm. there's a part of you that's like, have they just cast it because it's Bradley Cooper? Yeah. But you didn't. I didn't hear any Bradley Cooper in it. Mm. But my favourite was Drax. I thought yeah. Drax was brilliant. Nothing goes over my head. My <laughs> reflexes are too quick. I would catch it. <laughs> he was funny. I, I quite like the collector in it. I liked the collector. I, I liked him at the end of Thor, which was only written so he could show up in Guardians. Was it? Was yeah. that filmed when they were doing Guardians? Well, it was written for his appearance, yeah. But was that like the teaser at the end of Thor was filmed by Joss Whedon when he was doing the Avengers? Right. So was the teaser at the end of Thor filmed when they were doing Guardians of the Galaxy? Could have been. Could have been, couldn't it? Yeah. It was good. It was very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. See, the problem that you've got with this is if you say something like, yeah, it was good, it's not as good as insert name of film here, people interpret that as you didn't like it. Yeah. Which is not what I said. <laughs> I liked it a great deal. I just preferred the Captain America movie. I did like the bit at the end. I loved the bit at the end. Are we spoiling the... Yeah, okay, apparently we're spoiling we the bit at the end. spoilers. <laughs> Dude. We have. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, I would the duck. Can we, can we have a new <laughs> Howard the Duck movie? That was brilliant. Yeah. But I would the duck showed up at the end. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. There's a little Adam Warlock teaser in there as well. Adam Warlock cocoon was in there. Him. And one of the aliens from Thor 2 was in it. Yeah, and you spotted him. Yeah. And you spotted the dark elf. I kind of just went, oh, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Apparently there's lots of little easter eggs in the collector's room if you're paying attention. Yeah. But yeah, who thought? Who thought? Like, oh, the, the dog. Yeah. Was uh, a member of the Guardians of the, uh, of the Galaxy. In the comics? Yeah. Okay. Him and Rocket Raccoon didn't get on very well. I can understand that. And the Noah, the big head. Yeah. That was the base. Well, excellent. Good. So it may be worth investigating, certainly the Abda and Lanning stuff. Yeah. And seeing what we think. Because it was, it was very enjoyable. I, I greatly enjoyed it. Good soundtrack as well. Yes, the awesome mix. Yeah, the awesome mix. And then awesome mix too. Yeah. So he'd been listening to the same tape for 20 odd years. Yeah. And he had a different tape though. Mm-hmm. Where did he get his batteries from for his Walkman? Maybe they don't use batteries. He's Maybe he's jerry-rigged he's his Walkman yeah. at this point to not work off batteries. Yeah. You think? Mm-hmm. That's an excellent Nobel Prize explanation. Do you know the Milano? Do you know who it was named after? Alyssa Milana? It was indeed. Was it? Yeah. Who's the boss? Because <laughs> that's what she'll have been in in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. He fancied Alyssa Milano when she was in Who's the Boss? Apparently. Okay. I prefer her now, but obviously I'm a lot older now, so it'd be a bit icky if I still liked her then, wouldn't it? <laughs> a little bit wrong. It's like watching, when I was in the gym the other day, um, Melissa Joan Hart's TV show's on, Melissa and Joey. Okay. And I'm watching it going, wow, Sabrina's much more attractive now. <laughs> But I don't watch Sabrina as I am now. Yeah. So, kind of all works. Anyway, yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy was great. Before we go on to a Melissa Joan Hart, he's, he's hot, trapped. We don't want to go down that path. Okay. Anyway, um, now that we've spoiled that film for you. Yeah. <laughs> we warned you. I don't have much to say about it's Captain America. I didn't think it was as, as ladled with subtext as Captain America. I didn't yeah. think it was. Captain America had an awful lot to say within the confines of a superhero action flick, which I thought was what made it a step above a lot of the other movies. It was a superhero action flick, and you can enjoy it on that level, but it was saying something. Yeah. There was a lot of meat to that story. Guardians of the Galaxy was just a fun romp. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But I think in the grand pantheon of things, Captain America the Winter Soldier was, was, was a better film. 
But Winter Soldier was fun. Groot, the little dancing Groot was funny. Yeah. I liked him. It was, it was good. This is what we're saying. So if you listen to this and we've ruined it for you, but you haven't seen it, go and watch it. And then we've not ruined it for you. Well, we have. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. We did say spoilers. Didn't we? We did. Right, In our defence. In our defence. Anyway, should we do some emails from people who probably haven't seen Guardians of the Galaxy? Okay. Unless they saw it. After they sent the emails. After they sent the emails and then sent the email back through time to get to us before Guardians of the Galaxy came out. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Legends Forever Evil and Jeff Johns' personal fan fiction is the subject heading. It is from Mr. Tom Panneries. Hi, Tom. Hello, Leylands. Do you like how I wave at them? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like a medium. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, well, it's not an affectation, is it? I genuinely go, I am every single week. Uh, with apologies to Chris Franklin in high school, I once wrote, it's better to burn out than to fade away. In my creative writing notebook, giving full credit to the Kurgan, and my teacher decided to correct me and wrote, no, Neil Young. <laughs> I guess there were worse people for the Kurgan to quote there. Anyway, I came here not to correct pop culture references or wax poetic about the mid-1980s Queen albums that I wore out whilst my friends were listening to Metallica and Nirvana in the mid-90s. I came here to talk about crossovers. Well, pull up a chair. Crossovers, specifically Crisis on Infinite Earths, were my gateway to the DC Universe when I started collecting comics in the early 1990s. I was given a bunch of comics by a friend, and in them was Crisis 12, which I read several times over. I then began buying copies of any DC crossover I could get my hands on, until it became financially impossible to do so. I remember Legends being disappointing when I originally read it, but I was a teenager and used to bang smash fight stories, not ones that made me think... Darkseid is a great villain, but I think I expected more out of him in the six issues, especially considering the Great Darkness saga had shown him to be on the level of universe-wide threats we've seen from other DC stories. But I think I may go to the comic shop and start digging the series and its crossovers out of the back-issue bins. As for Forever Evil, I followed the event loosely and had the opportunity to read the final issue at the low, low price of free! And while it seemed like it was a good story, I agree with your frustration that the ending simply sets up the next big event. Jeff John seems obsessed with getting us excited about post-credit scenes, which can be exciting when done well and used spurringly, but John's overuse of the last big page reveal has gotten to the point where it feels like schlock. As for the anti-monitor at the end of Forever Evil 7, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't intrigued, especially based on the number of hints dropped in recent issues of Future's End about a war between Earth 1 and Earth 2. But at the same time, I find myself wondering aloud if all these new 52 events aren't just Jeff Johns getting the opportunity to write his own personal DC fanfiction. It's not that he's a bad writer, but the way he's used particular concepts and characters over the last couple of years make me think of him like a kid with a huge box of toys who picks up a few and says, I want to play Crisis! That comment seemed a little bit more snarky than it had to be, but if Jeff Johns is going to do his own version of Crisis, I think he needs to realise there is a fine line between Hendrix covering Dylan and the Wallflowers covering Bowie. Anyway, I shall conclude this rambling mess of an email. Thanks for endless hours of entertainment. Good luck at college, Michael. All the best. Tom. Well, it looks like you're sticking around for another year, doesn't it? And it's not that he's not going to college. You're going to do another year at college. Yeah. And then go to university. Yeah. So on the plus side, you're here for another year. On the negative side... <laughs> you say that very, very reluctantly. Yeah, I wanted you to go. On the negative side, I've got to come up with another 52 show ideas. Oh, I'm sure you will hate that. <laughs> We've got to come up with another 52 of these things. I like your idea. What? We just cover 52. <laughs> One issue a week. That's all we do. We don't do anything else. It could be short episodes. <laughs> yeah, but easy. 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you to Tom for emailing in with his thoughts on crossovers. Our next email. What the hell, dudes? Oh. I hope that's not directed at us. It's from Michael... We are the dude. All the young dude. It's from Michael Lane, who is a new emailer! That's me sound effect for new emails. Oh, okay. You you bang on the table. I bang on the table, yeah. In In a rough, rough manner. To Mr. and Mr. Leyland. I'm a fairly new listener to your podcast, having only started in the last two months. I began by jumping around some of your earliest episodes based on my level of interest in the particular comic or series you were covering. After a few weeks, I became a regular follower of your new episodes when you began covering the 70s. I absolutely loved them, but imagine my huge disappointment when I got to those new episodes and you were discussing ending the show! It's that kind of crushing news that leads one to a lifelong career in super villainy. <laughs> I like the idea that us finishing leads somebody to a career as a super villain. And that's the motivation. Podcasting terrorists. I would be proud of that. We created a super villain. I'd be made up with that. Anyway, have no fear, Michael. We're around for at least another year. Now, it does appear there is some hope for the show, and if it does survive, I look forward to new episodes. I wish the younger Mr. Leyland a successful future at college. At least I can look forward to the fantastic ass to satisfy my love of funny accents. I just listen to any number of podcasts. Because hmm. they're all them funny ones from across the Atlantic. <laughs> uh, I do want to comment on your recent Hulk episode. I agree with Andrew that I prefer a Hulk that has never caused a death, but with one exception. In John Byrne's brief run in the mid-1980s, the Hulk and Bruce Banner were separated into two beings. As a result, the Hulk became a completely mindless beast, and he went on such a rampage that an entire town was destroyed, leading to both the East and West Coast Avengers being called in to stop him. I find it impossible to imagine that this story could have occurred without at least some people being killed. Nevertheless, I don't see this particular story as tainting the Hulk in the long term, as the whole point was that Banner had been separated, and the Hulk was without even a shred of humanity. In fact, this can even make the view that the Hulk had never caused a death before more reasonable, as one could say Banner had always been there to exert at least some influence on the Hulk, keeping him from going too far. So I can accept a history of the Banner-influenced Hulk having never caused a death without it being too much of a stretch, but I also accept that this mindless Hulk of the Burn era did cause multiple deaths without seeing as having tainted the character. Yeah, I just think a Hulk without Banner's influence could very easily have been a murderous creature. But that's the point, isn't it? Banner yeah. stops him from being a murderer, because if Banner felt the Hulk was a murderer, Banner would end it somewhere, is my thinking. But that's just me. I also think that the view of the Banner-influenced Hulk having never caused a death is consistent with the portrayal of the Hulk throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s, as that of a creature who basically just wanted to be left alone. Putting this portrayal together with the idea of Banner as always having at least some influence, and it becomes at least plausible in my mind that he's directly not caused any deaths. Admittedly, my knowledge of Hulk comics gets sketchy starting in the late 90s, but at least as far as the history I know of the character, that's my take. Thanks for the podcast, and I can't wait for more episodes, however many or few there may be. Michael Lane from Virginia. Well, thank you, Michael. It's always nice to have a new mailer email in. Especially good emails. Good, that one. I like that one. Especially because it doesn't disagree with me. (laughs) Which is always the top criteria for a good email, in my humble opinion. (laughs) <laughs> Hulk Grey is from David Gutierrez Andrew and Michael you know I hadn't really measured Hulk Grey against its companion colour series it's probably due to the release schedules but you're right it may be the leanest in plot and the strongest in character Hulk is strongest there is after all 
I'd have to have put Spider-Man Blue as the weakest of the three on account of its flimsy framing sequence of Peter dictating a letter to his late girlfriend, or as my wife calls it, pretty good grounds for divorce. <laughs> I ran your review by the Hulk himself, and this is what he had to say. Laylers, Hulk, thank you for reviewing Hulk Grey. It pleased Hulk to see appreciation for Hulk's early days. It takes Hulk back to simpler times. But review make Hulk angry. Bah! Puny Michael! How do you not see parallels between Hulk and Betty's storyline? Did not subtle! <clears throat> I can't do that anymore. It's my voice. <laughs> also, why you not like how Hulk draw? I'm monster. Me look like monster. It's simple. I'd see how Michael looks after Gamma Bomb exploding Mike's face. I'm pretty sure I liked the art and you didn't. I'm pretty sure that of that as yeah. well. <laughs> so Hulk must like, not like me for that. That's right. Yeah. Also, Hulk like Nutella. <laughs> Please forward to Earth Force Base, courtesy of General Ross. It makes for good joke for Hulk. <laughs> Why would the Hulk like Nutella? It's awful. No, it's not. Yeah. Yeah, I tell you. That's all he said, and then he smashed my car, David. <laughs> well, thank you for that, David. We, we appreciate you passing on a message from the Hulk to us. Our next email is a new emailer! Do you like that? It's It's certainly very cheap, isn't it? (laughs) Katie Williams has emailed in. Titles are outside of my realm of expertise. Which is a good title. Okay. I like the irony of that. (laughs) I'm no good at titles, so my title is a pun on the fact that I'm no good at titles, but hey, it's a good title in and of itself. Very clever. I like that. I am sure glad I found this podcast. Granted, it would be sod's law I find you whilst on a random troll through iTunes on some Garth Ennis hunting, no less, just as the podcast is potentially on the verge of becoming no more. But at least I found you. As someone who is just now at the ripe old age of 23 starting to delve into the epic universes of Marvel and DC, your podcast has been somewhat of a godsend. For a long time, I've found the bigger comic worlds to be a bit daunting to get into. I've collected Hellboy since the early 2000s, as well as a few lesser-known and cult titles. But the big universes had so much backstory, I never knew where to begin, and as a poor student, couldn't afford to start buying everything. Since finding your podcast, I've been going back and listening from the beginning, and already I have a few issues on my When the PhD Bursary Comes In list of things to buy. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's great, that, Katie. Spend all your money on comics. Someone here does. Students can live off bread <laughs> and dripping. Ramen noodles. <laughs> Cadbury's cream eggs from the 50p retainer bin. Just buy about 20 of them and them last all week. Is that how I plan to live? <laughs> buy comics, just eat. Yeah, buy comics and buy cheap stuff yeah, from just, Asda. You'll just see me in the corner of my underwear eating tubs of lard. You will go half an hour before the shop shut every <laughs> night and get stuff that is on sell by day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just eat around them all. That's fair enough. Your coverage of some of the more important events from the past has given me some great insights into characters that I've just started to explore. That's a lot of blab that say I love your podcast and thank you for helping me get back into comics and spend my bursary money. <laughs> I love making people spend money on the wrong things. You're very welcome, Kurt. <laughs> I know that your parents will thank us. <laughs> Why are you looking so thin? What do you mean you're only eating bread and dripping? Yes, but look at my kick-ass comic collection. <laughs> Was that you? <laughs> Last one for tonight before we move on with the finale of the Clone Saga because it'll probably be a bit longer than usual. This one is from Brad. Brad G. That's all it says, so I don't know what his surname is. Oh, it's be Greg Lynn, won't it? Of course it will. 
because he says, G'day, lovely Leyland, so he's obviously Australian. I put two and two together and arrive at the correct conclusion. Okay. Because I is smart. I need things to make me go. G'day, lovely Leyland's. <laughs> Don't take offence to the accent. I just finished listening to your podcast on the DC Legends. I remember getting those when they came out. And I actually cringed when I read the Captain Boomerang dialogue. We don't say Cobber or Struth all the time. As for the Legion, long live the Legion! And he's put like really big letters. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. I told you that the Legion fans were Legion, didn't I? Yes. I told you that us saying that, well, you know, I don't actually care about the Legion would get them upset, but no, you insisted on saying it. So that'll that'll do for tonight, I think, for emails. Got a couple more in the bag. Not a lot. I don't know what it is about Seven Soldiers, but people just didn't email in. <laughs> one likes it. Well, it's one of those weird things. Oh, they're doing things. Morrison. Yeah, no, 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 no. Don't say that. There is a certain segment of the listening population that, oh, Jesus, Grant Morrison. But yeah. we also have a very large segment of the listening population that's, yay, they're doing a Grant Morrison comic again. And we appeal to everybody. Yes. That's our, that's where we go. But it seems that the Grant Morrison people aren't very prolific emailers. <laughs> Apart from Stephen Lester, he's the only one that emailed in about seven soldiers <laughs> yeah. so far. Uh, no, Chris has emailed in, but he's kind of oh, Grant Morrison again. Yeah. So well, anyway, that, so they're coming up, coming up. So we hope that you enjoy them. But after this commercial break for a podcast that I'm positive will be magnificent. Don't fast forward the trailers. I never do that. Uh, and we'll be right. Excellent. Well done. It's like a well-oiled machine. Hello, podcast listener. My name is Russell Bragg, and I host a podcast called The DC Comics Presents Show. Every episode, I talk about the DC Comics Presents comic, starring Superman. I will be detailing all 97 issues, plus the four annuals. I will be spotlighting the DC character that Superman teams up with, plus I will be looking at the comic spinner rack to see what other comic books were on sale. So join me, Russell Bragg, for each exciting episode of the DC Comics Presents show. Please go to the show's website at www.dccpshow.com for more information. That's DCCPSHOW. Amazing Spider-Man issue 147 continues the story from our previous two episodes. And if you've not listened to them, I can't be bothered doing a recap. It's got another gorgeous John Romita cover of the tarantula leaping over a dead or unconscious policeman. Probably the latter in this era of comics. Although it does look like a pool of blood underneath him, but it's not covered red. Mm. It could just be water because he's near a grid. Yeah. So it can go either way, couldn't it? The tarantula's razor-sharp spikes on his boots are aimed directly at Spider-Man, something Spidey points out in his thought bubble. It's great because it's John Romita, but it has to be said, tarantula looks much closer to us, the reader, than Spider-Man does, which would mean he'd just sail right past him. Yeah, maybe Spider-Man's dodgy. Yes, that's a good point, because it's a great cover, though. Yeah. John Romita Sr. is is absolutely fantastic. I like the tarantula. Or as I always called him, the Mexican Spider-Man. <laughs> El Hombre Arana! <laughs> That's who he is, isn't it? I, I do like his, his spiky shoes, though. Like the crazy old woman in From Russia With Love. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> he rules a club. <laughs> the Tarantula is a Very Deadly Beast was written by Jerry Conway. He's the author 
of this particular <laughs> issue, which is he's nowhere pretentious. Ross Andrew was the artist. Mike Eposito and Dave Hunt were the embellishers. Peter returns from Florida with bugger all in the way of photos, and Jonah isn't best pleased. Peter is more interested in the envelope Ned Leeds has gotten a hold of, which apparently reveals that Gwen Stacy is a clone. Elsewhere, the tarantula breaks loose from prison and is picked up by the jackal. <laughs> I've just made him sound like a prostitute. Made him sound like the tarantula's curb crawling, doesn't it? <laughs> Aunt May is picked up from the hospital by MJ, which is a different kind of curb crawling, and she tells her that Gwen be damned. If MJ wants Peter, she should go for it. Peter, now attired as Spider-Man, isn't anybody's dream date at the minute, once again having a mental breakdown that involves him punching the shop window after hallucinating about Gwen. The Rosers try to pick him up for it, but the tarantula knocks them all out with his implausibly spiky shoes of death or unconsciousness. This is a code-approved book. Lots of cool fighting happens and they end up on a bus with a loony driver who turns out to be the Jackal. Gwen also boards, but she seems a little out of it. Spider-Man tries to protect her, but the tarantula scores a hit and we fade to black. Spider-Man awakens chained and manacled atop the Brooklyn Bridge. The Jackal explains it was all building to this. Finally, after two years, he will take his revenge. With that, the tarantula kicks Spider-Man off the bridge and he plummets to his doom. Good cliffhanger. Excellent cliffhanger. Unusually, though, the splash page has nothing on it, apart from the really rather nice artwork of Spider-Man hitching a ride on a helicopter. Title and credits. There are no captions or thought balloons. One of the rare times Spider-Man has shut the hell up. Yeah, maybe Uh, maybe just really tired. He has just flew back from Florida. Um, is the implication that he's flew back from Florida on the underside of a helicopter? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he has. One would imagine he got a commercial flight. Okay. That seems a bit stupid. He flew back into New York. And then he got, he got from the airport to wherever he's well, going he on the underside. Well, on the splash page. Yeah, so presumably then, the uh, implication is he's got off the plane and then hitched a New York he Airways. really, really high. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't be able to do that now. Because it's implied he's just walked out of the airport and when you now you're kind of herded yeah. out of the airport, aren't you? So. But times have changed. There have been a number of giant-sized Spider-Man issues published over the duration of this series of comics, but this is the first time it's been referenced in Amazing Spider-Man itself. Peter is returning here from an adventure in issue 5 of that series. Jonah doesn't take too kindly to Peter having had an all-expenses-paid trip to Florida and the Bugle having nothing to show for it. To be perfectly honest, this is one of the few times I can actually see Jonah's point. There's no reason for Peter to not have gotten any photos, given that... And I did look this up, because right. it's in the trade paperback. All the way through giant-sized Spider-Man and the Man-Thing issue 5, he has his camera with him. Yeah, well, Peter has the line of dialogue, or oh, how has he continued to live without a heart? And you sat there going, yeah, but you, but were, you were given you a job were paid to do. to do a job. <laughs> yeah. You were paid expenses to do a job that you didn't do. This isn't Joker's <laughs> fault. This is Peter's fault being a dick, (laughs) quite frankly. And it's not the first time Conway's written Peter as a dick, is it? So, you know, I can understand Jonah being a bit upset with him here, to be honest. Peter's wearing a a very natty yellow, what looks like a leather jacket. Have you ever seen a bright yellow leather jacket? No. I get the distinct impression that the colourist coloured that wrong. I I think that... um, I suspect Ross Andrew drew a tan 
leather jacket of a kind that David Soule used to wear in Starsky and Hutch. Yeah. That would be my thinking. And the colourist made it yellow. But this is the colourist who colours his eyes blue, so... (laughs) Obviously not paying too much attention. The Comics Code Authority presumably raises its head on page three. The Tarantula escapes thanks to being given access to the prison workshop, where he has made himself more pointy-toed boots. One, never give a criminal (laughs) unlimited access to the prison workshop. It never ends well. Didn't we point this out in Happy Birthday Superman? Yeah. That we just give Lex Luthor access to the prison workshop and be like, oh! it's good for his development and his rehabilitation and every single time he broke out of jail so these people get what they deserve yeah quite frankly his, his shoes also don't look all that comfy if no the implication of it is it's made of metal he's wearing metal shoes because he's in the metal shop yeah are they not does it not look to you like in the mid panel though that he's made something that slides over his shoe it looks more like clogs to me. But then on the next panel, it looks like it's a full boot, doesn't yeah. it? So there is an inconsistency in the artwork there. But anyway, B, we clearly see Tarantula kick the guard in the throat yeah. with a sound effect with the pointy end of the shoe. But the dialogue on the next page says, oh, I've only stunned him. I would imagine he was quite stunned (laughs) as that spiky footwork pierced his jugular and then he went and bled out all over the floor. So, in a sense... (laughs) He was only stunned. He was only stunned, yeah. It was the bleeding out. It was the bleeding out that killed him after the fact. Yes, entirely (laughs) true. Aunt May basically tells Mary Jane Watson to screw Gwen and pursue Peter herself. May always seemed to prefer MJ to Peter's other girlfriends going all the way back to Betty Brandt. I've always thought that that's because Aunt May knew Mary Jane's backstory. And yeah. Peter didn't. Well, but that's just me. I thought Mary Jane was really kind of selfish here. Oh, Peter's... The, the love of Peter's life who died <laughs> has now come back and he's just blown me off for her. Well, see, Mary Jane, maybe the thing is because she died and all. Mm. And he's got another chance. Yeah. But he's moved on with Mary Jane. It's all very but confusing. I think th- it's funny how they're just acting like this just happens every day. Comics! Yeah, I guess, but wasn't Gwen the first one to come back? Um, do you, ooh, I don't want to say yes, just in case there is somebody else, but if lovely listeners know, did Sharon Carter get killed and come back? Or was that after this? Don't know. You know, Gwen may be the first one who was killed and then came back. You may be right. It's funny, and just... not in a, a planned kind of way. You know, they killed yeah. the Joker off every time he was in the comics. Yeah. And then next time he just resurfaced and, oh, I survived. And it was just like, okay, business as usual. Yeah. I think you may be right, Gwen was killed and then editorially edicted to bring her back. Yeah. So you may be right. But it's just funny how... Her, her problem isn't with Gwen coming back, it's that Peter's now going back out with her. <laughs> well, he's not, though, is he? He's, he's no. a little confused as to what he does want. Yeah. But that's quite understandable. But it's absolutely normal that people come back from the dead. But, oh, why won't Peter spend any attention? They do, other than Aunt May having a heart attack that put her in hospital. Which, let's face it, is Tuesday, isn't it? (laughs) Other than that, everyone seems to accept that Gwen Stacy's back. Lead needs. Yeah, with lead needs. (laughs) Ned Leeds. I did on purpose. I I prefer the name Lead Needs. I know, that's funny. Just, he's, oh, she's a clone, Peter. Oh, okay. Yeah, every, you said people are clones. People yeah, come back people are cloned and every yeah. day in the Marvel Universe. It's very cheap. It's people, eh? <laughs> yeah, if she'd been come back called Dolly, <laughs> yeah. it'd have all been perfectly okay with this. 
<laughs> Look up Dolly the Sheep, lovely listener. That's a comical story. Uh, Jerry Conway always seems to write a Spider-Man who's on the verge of a nervous breakdown, which is why I prefer the idea that Gwen was dead before the goblin pushed her off that damned bridge. There's only so much guilt one can place upon Peter's shoulders before he'd just completely go insane, wouldn't he? Yeah. He would just completely snap. I do love as well that doctors in the Marvel Universe can tell that she's a clone. Yeah. Can you imagine going to the, the local doctor and having him run a battery of tests on you and go, oh yeah, you're a clone. And you're like, really? Doctor, doctor, I've got amnesia and I think I died. Well, it appears you've got mild cloning syndrome. <laughs> Apparently you're a clone. People really are smart in comics, aren't they? Yeah. Don't they just, maybe you're right, maybe cloning's just a natural event. Yeah. Maybe they've got past that whole moral issue of cloning in the Marvel version of New York and now they just blasé about it. <laughs> stem cell researching in every hospital. Yeah. I do think it's a misstep that Peter learns this really rather important information off-panel. Yeah. But that's not the first time Gwen Stacy's... Gwen Stacy's... It's not the first time Jerry Conway's done that, is it? Mm. Give us important information in a flashback or off-panel. Excellent full-page splash once the fight scene starts of Spider-Man leaping over the tarantula and karate chopping him in the neck. Uh, exhibit C at this point, or D, Millard, as to why Ross Andrew is an excellent Spider-Man artist and is very underrated. The tarantula's line, first you bring your prey into the trap and then you thrust him in, made no sense. Yeah. Like, if he's already in the trap, yeah. you've got him. Bring him to the trap? Yeah. Well, no, but that's he's already in the trap. That's what he says. You bring the prey into the trap and then you thrust him right, in. Okay, yeah. But there's no thrusting necessary. To thrust means to push, forcibly. Which kind of implies you're pushing your prey out of the trap that you've lured him into. Unless you're making damn sure they're in the trap. Paul, what? You've got him in the trap and then you're pushing him further into it? Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> it's, a, maybe it's a big cage. Maybe it's a big box und- over that stick. Uh, yeah, but what's the the tarantula's trap at this point? To fight him on top of a yellow taxi cab? To get him into the bus where there's a kill c- kid called Hyman, <laughs> which cracks me up. Oh, yes. I mean, he could be talking about thrusting with his boots. I guess. But he doesn't do that. He punches him in the face. <laughs> so, yeah, didn't make any sense, did it? I mean, I know in the heat of battle, you may say things that don't necessarily... <laughs> make any sense whatsoever but yeah. still somebody's thought this dialogue through presumably and written it on a page but maybe it's maybe it sounds better in Mexican maybe it does sound better in Mexican yes I, I would imagine all of the tarantula's dialogue sounds better in Mexican I love the bus driver in this I mean let's be honest this this whole sequence on the bus is ridiculously entertaining I liked it it was, it was quite creepy as it, well. and it, yeah and it's Spidey's fight with the tarantula is merely a diversion and the fight takes them on the bus to driver, which is the Drackel, complete with a mask on over his mask. Yeah. Which is as Bronze Age as it gets. But yeah, it's the the all the kids are being, what's going on? Wow, and they're very excited. And then they get off, and then the bus driver is just, we will be stopping at the next stop. And it's all played very comically, while still being, like you said, a little bit creepy. Yeah. And I, I thought it was, it was really good. Then Gwen gets on the bus... She completely ignores what's going on around her. And then we get final confirmation that it was the Brooklyn Bridge that Gwen was thrown off. Because they're all now on top of the Brooklyn Bridge again. Which begs the question, how easy was it to get to the top of the Brooklyn Bridge in 1975? Could you just walk up there? Yeah, because you can walk up those beams, can't you? Or at least 
people, construction workers, can't. So you think they just walked up the beam? Maybe. Alright, Or maybe okay. they used, like, jack, jack, jetpack. From the next issue? Yeah. But that implies that Gwen then knows that the jetpack's in the coat, which she doesn't I'm seem sure to. feel it. Yeah. Anyway, but we'll get to that when we get to the next issue. But as of this, they just magically appear on top of the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, that, that little scene with the car flipping on top and spinning around was a little bit... That's a little bit campy, isn't it? Yeah. They knock over a VW bug and it spins right round, 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 and then the wife goes, I told you to move the car, George. Yeah. That's a little bit campy. <laughs> you expect that to be in a Herbie the Love Bug movie, circa 1969, don't you? Yeah. Rather than a Spider-Man comic from 1975. Uh, actually, this was a great issue. I mean, we've took the piss a little bit, but, uh, you know, that's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> at large, some of the humour's a little forced, as we mentioned, the VW bug stuff, and the mystery of Gren has been solved rather anticlimactically. But seeing the jackal wearing a bus conductor's uniform isn't without its humour. Mm. Has to be said. The tarantula is yet another bad guy here, only to do the jackal's bidding. And again, he could be anybody. There doesn't seem to be any reason given for these two to even be working together. Oh, did I miss it? No. no. He was sorry. freaking out, so the jackal just pulled up. Yeah, like he did with the scorpion. Yeah. Hey, scorpion, come and join me for some fun. I think he just sits outside prisons yeah. and waits for the next criminal. We made a joke out. about it, but he curb crawls. <laughs> yeah. He curb crawls for supervillains. That's his fetish. <laughs> He's not curb crawling in the red light district. Uh, Gwen is, well, useless, isn't she? She's a blank canvas. I think I would have preferred to see more of the Gwen, Peter relationship and them trying to work all this out instead of more generic, albeit exciting, superhero fighting. But it was a good issue. Mm. Very enjoyable issue, all told. Uh, it's around this time that Marvel was starting to put adverts for other comics on the bottom of certain pages. Like there's Bounty for a Vampire but it won't be collected as long as Dracula lives. Which just seem kind of like non sequiturs doesn't it because it doesn't say Dracula lives now on sale yeah it's just a random line at the bottom of the comic and it makes you subliminal yeah (laughs) subliminal advertising (laughs) that's that's, that's not bad at all the superhero stick-ons that we mentioned last week that sell for $250 are still being advertised (laughs) Electro Man is telling you that electronics is going to be the next big thing and you should learn all about them. The Spider's Web Letters page is only one page this week. There is nobody of note there. G.I. Joe meets the amazing Atomic Man, who just looks like a rip-off of uh, the $6 million man, but I don't know what the the premise of that strip was because I didn't read it. And that's pretty much it. Bill Pembulletons is still plugging the origins of Marvel Comics, and you can still buy the great Marvel T-shirts that we mentioned last time. But other than that, nothing of interest. Mm-hmm. or import Amazing Spider-Man number 148 is another that I got from Coliseum of Comics a couple of years ago in Florida 50% off gift uh, it's cover dated September 1975 it has a great Gil Kane John Romita cover adios webhead screams the tarantula as he yells our hero off the Brooklyn Bridge chained up like a BDSM worshipper's wet dream give out the guards to the fishes tarantula continues for today the tarantula triumphs I hear him as Eli Wallach from um, the Magnificent Seven Okay. that's how I hear him speaking he continues to drone on and on and on Gwen stands by watching her windswept in the breeze like a Timotei commercial and the jackal seems to be performing some kind of interpretive dance <laughs> it's really excellent cover but I am confused by the jackal's 
opportunity, taking this opportunity, sorry, to perform a, a bizarre mime. Oh, he, he's about to kick the, the um, tarantula. Yeah, because the implication there is the tarantula has chucked Spider-Man off the bridge. Yeah. Not that the tarantula has kicked him. So the tarantula is just kind of like, hey, look at me, it's like Steve Martin doing some wacky kung fu dance. Not the, kung fu, King Tut. Maybe the jackal did kick him and the tarantula was just pointing. That's <laughs> pointing to laugh at the man about to die. But pointing in a way as if to say, I've just thrown you. He's not just pointing. Isn't he moving his body? He's very eccentric. <laughs> well, he would have to be, wouldn't he? In that outfit. Yes. All right. Okay. Fair enough. I prefer the idea of the jackal doing interpretive dance. It <laughs> just amuses me. Jackal, jackal, who's got the jackal? Spider-Man plummets to his death but manages to snag some scaffolding with his web. Sadly, whilst this stops his descent, it does cause him to smash into the bridge, rendering him unconscious. Doop! Atop the bridge, the Jackal, the Tarantula and Gwen are being accosted by the police, but fortuitously, Gwen has a portable jetpack in her coat. It's the latest in accessorising. With the jetpack, the trio make their escape. Down below, the riverboat police pick up Spider-Man and untie him, feeling that it'll go better for them in the publicity department if they brought him in without being tied up. It doesn't. Spider-Man was faking it and makes his escape also. At his apartment, Peter Parker completely brushes off MJ like the asshole that he is, but doesn't brush off Ned Leeds, who arrives to explain the plot. Through a series of diagrams and Excel spreadsheets, Ned reels off the facts of the case, and he points out that to clone Gwen, whoever did this will have had to have had access to Gwen's cell tissue before she died. Peter recalls that in class, Professor Miles Warren took samples of everybody for a science project. Miles Warren points Peter and Ned towards his assistant, Anthony Zerber, who disappeared a while back, and Peter, as Spider-Man, locates Zerber's address and webs on over. The tarantula is waiting for him, but Spidey makes short work of it. The jackal manages to get the drop on Spider-Man, somehow, and before Spider-Man passes out, the jackal reveals that he is, in actuality, Professor Miles Warren. Building up quite well now. Yeah. It has to be said. Spider-Man is still funny, even in uh, life or death situations. As he plummets to his death, he thinks that if he doesn't solve the mystery of Gwen Stacy, he'll never be able to live with himself. Come on, that was funny. That was a funny line of dialogue. Very, um, a nice little black line of humour, I thought was quite funny. Not as funny as Spider-Man manages to save himself and then knock himself out in the process. Yeah. You'd have think that the science student would understand the rudimentary laws of physics. He's the moment. <laughs> so he's stole web, and now I will swing, smash. Yeah. Maybe this is why he's flunking his classes. Could be. I still don't know how, why him falling down would cause him to pendulum. Yeah, wouldn't it just stop him? Well, if you have a look, he's falling. And it, it is a little bit of an artistic consistency, inconsistency. You're right, because he's falling straight down. He webs straight up from where he is. But then in the next panel, the webbing does look like it's at an angle. Yeah. So, I'll cut him some slack. It's just, you know. And then what walls he crashed against? If the railing would be under the bridge and not where the pillars are. Yeah, if he's grabbed hold of the rail there in panel one, two, three, four, five of page two, when he would swing, yeah, he wouldn't hit the wall, would he? No. The way that he's webbed that, he's swung the opposite way from where the webbing shows him grabbing the the construction. I think we're analysing this <laughs> too much, to be quite frank. Though Jackal having a portable jetpack <laughs> in Gwen's coat is campy as hell. Yeah. Yeah, fun. 
I liked how he plans it on there and Gwen had no idea. Yeah, Gwen's walking around with this jetpack weighing her down, completely oblivious. She seemed pretty com- completely oblivious to everything, though. Yeah, she is pretty vacuous in this yeah. issue. I kind of like that, the, the creepy clone. Yeah, that doesn't but say anything. Does her personality just come on and off? Yeah, she seems okay. Well, maybe he's drugging her at this point. Maybe yeah. when he's with her, he's drugging her. And then when she's... Because maybe that explains why she spent ages just wandering around. She was coming to from the drugs or whatever. Yeah. It's only a no prize. I'm, I'm pretty sure they didn't uh, give as much thought to it as we're doing. It, it reminds me a little Nelly from the James Bond films. That he puts this all together and suddenly yeah. he's got this great huge jetpack that he straps to the tarantula who carries him away. Uh, it's not as ridiculous as how the tarantula is carrying Gwen and the jackal on page 7. As we pointed out with Nightwing swinging in Forever Evil, the basic laws of physics aren't just dismissed, though. They're taken out the back and just have two put in the back of the head. Uh, maybe the propulsion of the jetpack is thrusting. No, I don't buy that at all, because the way he's holding Gwen and the jackal around their waist, yeah. but he's holding them, like, at shoulder height. You have to have some pretty good upper body strength to do that, but he's not pushing against anything if the jetpack is carrying him away. Do you see what I mean? There's no force for him to push against. Yeah. It would have made much more sense for them to be holding on to him in some way. I just, or, if he'd made the jetpack so he'd had a bar at the bottom for them all to stand on. Maybe. I mean, let's, let's let you know, if you're going to create something, <laughs> let's push the boat completely out. <laughs> if you're going to make a portable jetpack that all snaps together Why with not? Ikea. That would have been funny if he'd had Ikea instructions. Yeah. They got him upside down in the wrong way around. The, Why not yeah. put seatbelts on there as well? You do get this distinct impression that it's only like that so you can't see up Gwen's skirt. Maybe. That's my thinking. Uh, Peter Parker is once again an astonishing jerk to Mary Jane Watson when he arrives back at home. It's actually quite a during scene for the time were, I mean, certainly as I read it, as MJ implying that Peter and Gwen have been spending all their time together, i.e. sleeping together. Yeah. Which I'm happy with, because that would negate sins past. Right, okay. So I would be completely down with, oh, no, technically this is the clone, isn't it? Yeah. So it wouldn't negate sins past. Oh, bummer. Anyway, Peter slamming the door in Mary Jane's face is um, <laughs> quite unacceptable. To, to be honest, I quite liked this scene. Why? I think Mary Jane was being out of order and being very selfish, considering Gwen Stacy was very close to Peter, died, and is now back. That and the whole Spider-Man situation of him almost just dying and being arrested, and all she wants is his attention. And considering as well Peter's mental state at this point. Yeah. He is on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Yeah. I thought she was the one being kind of out of order here. You Not think? Him. Yeah. All right, fair enough. I, I think there may have been a better way of approaching him than going in all guns blazing. But I think slamming the door in the face may have been a bit much. Yeah. But that's just me. Okay, fair enough. All right, you had a different reading of it than me. That's fine. I think she would have been perfectly acceptable if she got a Greyhound bus and just buggered off at this point. Mm. But, alright, fair enough. Conway mixes in some nice humour in this issue as well, with Peter rushing off with Ned Leeds, and then remembering that he's not got any pants on. Yeah. 
That was that was quite fun. And if you're paying attention to this entire scene and events that happen at the end of this issue that we've not got to yet, lovely listener, Ned Leeds has all the clues necessary to put together that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Yes. Doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that when I was reading it. When Peter is stumbling over his words when they go and see Professor Warren, uh, trying to explain the situation, he realises he's, he's not being terribly clear. Ned Leeds is a real condescending jerk to him, yeah. isn't he? Uh, he says to, to Professor Warren, I'm not really being very clear here, am I? And Ned's like, no, you're not. Yeah. Shut up, let me do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I found it a bit funny. Is it not a bit weird for you teach to say, can I have your DNA for an experiment <laughs> that they don't do? Not in the 70s. Okay. Purple acceptable yeah. in the 70s. Especially Marvel Universe where clones are to a penny, <laughs> yeah. as we've already established. You should have just said, can I have your DNA so I can clone you all? <laughs> and they probably all would have gone, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it being the 70s. Uh, Conway makes another one of those errors with Spider-Man that we have noted a few times, not just in this, this series of shows. Spidey complains that I'm no good fighting in the dark, which is actually, thanks to his Spider-Sense, the best place Spider-Man can get into a fight, especially with somebody the same weight class as him. Now, I don't think the Tarantula is hmm. the same weight class as Spider-Man. We've certainly got no indication he's gotten any superpowers, have we? So really, Spider-Man should wipe the floor with this guy. But taking the fight outside actually gives Tarantula more of an edge. Yeah. Whereas fighting him in the darkness and using his Spider-Sense to guide him makes more sense. The art in this scene is excellent. It's very Ditko-inspired, because Ditko used to do this as well. To be fair, Jerry Conway doesn't seem to think that the Tarantula is much of a match for Spider-Man either. Because Spider-Man just takes him out quite efficiently and comically. The tarantula leapt at Spider-Man once they're outside. He goes smack through a billboard advertising Blatt's beer. He's now stuck waist deep in the billboard and his feet with his pointy shoes of death are trapped in the water tower that is behind the billboard. Essentially Spider-Man using his own powers against him, which was quite clever. But I still think Spider-Man should have took him out in the darkness and, you know, got on with his life. Uh, Another physics issue when he punches tarantula out and he comes flying out of the water tower there is no way the water would do that it wouldn't shoot out yeah in a perfect arc it would just dribble out wouldn't it mm. it may shoot out a little bit depends where the hole is and what pressure is yeah. in those water tanks and then that kind of thing the big reveal that professor warren is the jackal actually worked Mm. Did you know that he was who, him? Yeah. Right, so that wasn't a big so reveal for you. So I've been reading it going, oh, you lying scumbag. So you've been reading it with the knowledge that it was Professor Warren? Yeah. Right, okay. But it's it's it worked really well. It wasn't a hush situation, was it? Where you're like, what? Yeah. The Riddler? <laughs> it really did work. Warren has been a semi-regular in the book since Peter started college. And his brother was one of Peter's high school students. High school teachers. Yeah. So he's he's been in it for quite a while in various capacities, which is an example of Conway making character continuity work really well in this particular instance. Again, I thought this was a pretty damn good issue. Conway makes his humour and drama more effectively than in the last few issues, while still progressing with the story. Gwen is again incidental to the story as a character, perhaps even more bland than the original. Which may be, thinking about it, Conway making a subtle comment on the character. 
Okay. Just making her bland and uninteresting. It does feel like it's ramping up nicely to a big conclusion. Yeah. Which I I thought was uh, exceptionally well done. What did you think? I, I quite liked it now that it's all coming together. It's been a long time getting here, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes. There's been I, a lot of saga before we got to the clones. <laughs> very, very true. Uh, adverts this week aren't terribly interesting at all. There's more about bodybuilding. More about not finishing high school. <laughs> uh, a spider's web, doesn't, again, doesn't have anyone of interest. You can subscribe to the many, many, many Marvel titles that were available at this time. Uh, the 70s iron-on t-shirts get an excellent advert, because I remember these. They were crap. Um, you know, the I'm with stupid t-shirt yeah. kind of thing. None of them were very funny. Uh, Bullpen Bulletins is still packed, which is nice. And the best advert this week is for Foom, which is still going on, which you can join for, it doesn't say how much. Oh, $2.50, which doesn't seem that unreasonable. And the omnipotent Oshtur commands an enchanted treasury edition for you. 100 giant-sized, 10 by 14 pages, arcane artwork by... Steve Ditko, Gene Colan, Frank Bruner, Bill Everett, Marie Seven and Dan Atkins versus Nightmare, Baron Modo, The Dread, Domamu and Shuma Gorath. It is, of course, the Doctor Strange treasury. By the seven rings of Ragador, by the pulsating powers of darkness and light, send us the coupon to your right and the postman will bring this pulse-pounding supernatural treasury edition to your door. If I'd said that right, it would have rhymed. Amazing Spider-Man issue 149, cover dated October 1975, has a cover by Gil Kane and Frank Gaiacoya. It's Spider-Man versus Spider-Man, with Ned Leeds chained to a stick of dynamite. One web-slinger must slay the other, or Ned Leeds is doomed. Either way, the Jackal will have his revenge! The Jackal says. Why the Jackal wants revenge against Ned Leeds is something I hope will be explained, but I'm not holding my breath. This is it, the conclusion to the Spidey Jackal War. Even if I live, I die! Which makes no sense, if you think about it. Mike Esposito has taken over as full-time Inca, but other than that, all the credits are exactly the same. I thought it was a nice, subtle touch that one of the Spider-Mans has a lighter blue outfit than the other one. The other one's purple. I didn't know if that was intentional or if it was a colouring gaff. Yeah. What do you think? Couldn't be both. Good cover, though. Yeah. All these covers have been great, haven't they? Yeah. Bronze Age Marvel were fantastic for covers. Anyway, strap yourself in, lovely listener, because this is quite a big synopsis. Spidey wakes up in an abandoned tenement strapped to a table. The bonds are no match for his spider strength, but somehow the jackal is, and he gives our hero a severe beating. Bloodied and down, the jackal takes this opportunity to monologue his entire plan. See, he was Peter and Gwen's science teacher, which presumably Peter already knows, and was infatuated with the beauteous Miss Stacy. He felt she was the daughter he never had. Her loss drove him to distraction, and when his assistant, Anthony Zerbe, discovered the cloning technique was a success, thanks to the successful croning of a frog, Warren gave Zerba the tissue samples taken in class. Zerba was shocked when the samples started forming and were human, and Warren killed him. This took Warren's already unhinged mind over the edge, and it created another persona, that of the Jackal. Over the next few months, the Jackal toiled hard, building equipment and training his body, but his greatest success was a complete and total clone of Gwen Stacy. As the Jackal leaves, he tells Spider-Man to meet him later at Shea Stadium for the final confrontation. 
Upon arrival, and for the fourth time in as many issues, Spider-Man is drugged by the Jackal, and when he comes to, there is two of him. Both are wearing masks, so it's rather difficult to determine which one has the goatee beard. Ned Leeds makes another appearance as this issue's damsel in distress, and with a bomb counting down to his destruction, Spider-Man must fight Spider-Man to determine the outcome. However, Gwen is horrified by all that has been wrought in her name, and screams that the Jackal is a vicious, sick, jealous man, and a murderer. This snaps Warren out of it, and in a final desperate move, he cuts Ned loose before the bomb explodes. Spider-Man manages to pull Ned free, but his doppelganger and Warren are both caught in the blast. Gwen asks, how can you be sure that he's the real deal? It's a question she's still pondering herself the next day, as she lays a wreath on the grave of Gwen Stacy. She says it's probably better for everyone if she simply leaves. She kisses Peter and tells him not to look back, as Gwen exits his life. Arriving back at his apartment, MJ is waiting for him. Sloppy seconds again, eh, Mary Jane? (laughs) Uh, The splash page, Ned lost his blindfold. Although he does say Peter Parker's biology teacher instead of my biology teacher so he's not quite as stupid as uh, as we may have thought in the last issue when the jackal knocked spider-man out he scratched him with his talons which clearly ripped his mask at the back by the time we get to page three those rips have been repaired somehow uh the other big question on this issue was how the hell does the jackal who has no superpowered abilities at all manage to defeat spider-man in a one-on-one fight Unless... Spider-Man's still not drugged up. Spider... That was just going to be the no-prize explanation I I offered. He's been drugged that much over the past couple (laughs) of issues that he's like, what the... Why am I fighting the man in the green costume? Why don't the furries come away? (laughs) Wow. All right, yeah, that's a good explanation why the jackal can do that that's okay uh, Warren's infatuation with Gwen in these original stories is not quite as seedy as later writers including Jerry Conway have made it Conway takes great pains to point out that Warren's love of Gwen is, is, is as that of a father not a lover the grief he feels over her death is that of losing a daughter it's still the love of a clearly deranged man but Conway, clearly aware of the connotations people could apply to this story, takes great pains to paint Warren not as a predator of his students. Sadly, Conway himself would retcon this in a story that we'll mention at the end of the show. And by the 90s clone saga, there's a story where Warren's clone is married to Gwen's clone. Which is even more icky if you factor in the original, Oh, I loved her like a daughter. I don't know which is ickier to be honest but you know whatever Conway also clearly kills Anthony Zerber Warren incinerates his body yeah that's important as well for a retcon that will happen later see you should have read the retcon (laughs) stuff because it just completely guts this storyline it was my thought and I think I mentioned this two episodes ago that the Jackal knew Spider-Man was Peter Parker as a result of this cloning. He cloned Peter and then somehow figured out that Peter was Spider-Man from that, which I felt made the events of the Grizzly story nonsensical, as it was reasonably clear to me the Jackal knew Peter was Spider-Man. However, none of that explains why the Jackal cloned Peter at all. He didn't fancy Peter as well, did he? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what he was up to, to be honest. Um... 
Certainly, he cloned Gwen and she steps out of the cloning tube naked. Yeah. Which, again, is icky both ways you look at it. Whether he fancied her as a daughter or whether he fancied her as a lover. It's a little bit... Well, she's not going to grow her clothes on, really. Ah, well, keep that in (laughs) mind later. Put a pin in that. Okay. We'll come back to that as well. Although I, I did read this with knowing, thinking he knew Peter was Spider-Man. Well, yeah. Because he cloned him and then dressed him in a Spider-Man outfit for the fight. They have never mentioned in this series of issues when Professor Warren discovered Peter was Spider-Man. Which yeah. I think is slightly important to the narrative. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, fair enough. Maybe pin, just for pin the... that. Okay. Pin, put a pin in that. We'll all, the, we'll, the cloning with clothes on. Cloning with clothes on. Right. And Warren not knowing, or when Warren knew Peter was Spider-Man. Remember all of this. Okay, yeah. Will come in useful later. The Jackal says he trained himself after snapping, convinced that the good and decent Professor Miles Warren could not be a murderer. And that's when the Jackal persona took over. It's implied that he attacked Spider-Man via the Punisher in Amazing Spider-Man 129 because he is involved with Gwen's death but again, the issue of when the Jackal learned that Peter Parker is Spider-Man is seemingly forgotten. I'm now thinking that I was wrong and he didn't know in the Grizzly issues. But certainly you can read that issue both ways. Yeah. That he knows he's Peter. And he definitely knows by the time he sends the Scorpion after Aunt May. So when did he find out? It, it has to be when he cloned him. Yeah, that's my thinking as well. That's the only time. But then that means he must have known when the grizzly was in it. You see where my confusion yeah. comes from? Alright, fair enough. Uh, the Daily Bugle scene in the middle of this issue makes God, no sense whatsoever. Firstly, Peter says he's going to the Daily Bugle to see Murray Jane alone. Why the hell would he go to the Daily Bugle to that? Because Daily Bugle is where people hang out. Well, that's that's what... Why not go to her apartment? Why is Mary Jane even at the Daily Bugle? She doesn't work there. <laughs> is it just like this mecca for people to hang around with nothing better to it's do? It's the place to be. Really? And Jonah doesn't get annoyed about this. As long as they're bringing in money. Why would Jonah even know Mary Jane? Because of Peter? <laughs> Maybe Jonah um, like accepts people coming in because he doubles the prices on the coffee <laughs> machine. And they do drink a lot of coffee yeah. in these stories. All right, fair enough. Secondly, then, why does Peter flat out lie about not having seen Ned for a few weeks? Oh, you know what I thought? Well, I read this, that's his clone. You think? Yeah. You think that's the clone? Yeah. Why do you think that? Because the way I'm thinking is Peter's going to be wanting to fight the jackal right yeah so he's a bit angry and he's a bit messed up mentally and he's not just going to go to the Daily Bugle so what you're saying is the Peter Parker that was let go here is the clone yeah not the real Peter Parker yeah I'd never considered that wrinkle. That's why he he lied about Ned That's why, because I went the rational explanation, which could be where I went wrong, (laughs) obviously. But this storyline hasn't taken a few weeks to tell. Yeah. Okay, by my reckoning, the Cyclone issues took place on December the 28th. That was clearly stated in the story. Yeah. They were in Paris for two nights, taking us to December 30th. He arrives home, and Gwen is on his doorstep, and that led directly into issue 145. Presumably, New Year's happened in between here and issue issue 147, sorry, being charitable, is around January the 2nd. 
The end of issue 146, the Scorpion issue, Mm -hmm. is the only place where there's a clear break in time, but it can't be more than a day or two as Spider-Man references putting the Scorpion away in giant-sized Spider-Man number 5, and he arrives home from Florida in Amazing Spider-Man issue 147. Mm. So presuming that was two days as well, we are at the most January the 4th or January the 5th. Yeah. So... Amazing Spider-Man 147, 148 and 149 all take place directly after each other over no more than three days, putting this issue at around the 8th of January. So this entire storyline has lasted little over a week. So Peter saying he's not seen Ned for a few weeks is a flat-out lie. Whether he's a clone or not, anyone else in that room can call him out on that. I guess, but... Maybe. Because it started in August, right? No, it's... it's No, the first issue says it's at the end of August because it's the end of summer. All right, but I'm going from the Cyclone issues. All right, okay. So basically what you're saying is those issues prior took place over four months and then this entire story took place over a week. Yeah. So what if, right, (laughs) in the entire Clone Saga, we've been reading it from the perspective of Clone Spider-Man as well as normal Spider-Man? Oh, you're just adding a level of Morrison-esque timey-wimey to this that really isn't the... It is, because he says, I haven't seen him in a week. He could be telling the truth. Not when he saw him yesterday, when they went to see Miles no, Warren. that was normal Spider-Man. This All is right, clones. this is clones. Yeah. So everything that happens from this point on is the clone. No, we then return to the normal Spider-Man. All right, for the fight at the end. Yeah. All right, okay. But then we right. mix it up until the end, and then we just take the place. So you're, you're in the Ben Riley camp, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. This is a clone. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think the real Peter Parker died at the end of this issue. <laughs> <laughs> clone Spider-Man. Speaking of Ned, he's here the entire time that Spider-Man... Sorry, that the Jackal calls Spider-Man Parker. Yeah. And with all the other evidence that he's gathered from the last issue, he never makes the connection. Ned is a crap investigative journalist. Maybe he's got stuff covering his ears. Well, look there where he's tied to the dynamite. He's got a blindfold on, right? Yeah. Note that it goes over his ears. Put a pin in that as well. (laughs) For later on. (laughs) We'll be coming back to an awful lot of this. Uh, A couple of times we've pointed out that Conway's a little loose with his depiction of Peter's spider sense, and on the last page it warns him of someone in his apartment. That someone is MJ, so technically this isn't a goof. The spider sense is reacting to the presence of someone who could be a threat. So, alright. But before that, there was the really rather excellent fight between Spider-Man and Spider-Man, which was pretty awesome, because we in the audience don't know which is which, do we? No. Nowhere at this point do we know which one's real and which one's the clone, which I thought was a really nice touch. And then Professor Warren kind of redeems himself a little bit. It was thrown away very quickly. Yeah, you know. If we've all had all this build-up from just go, oh no, uh, I'm a bad guy, uh, throws a bomb away. Yeah. He did revert back to normal I was a bit disappointed with this ending, actually. Were you? Yeah. Well, I didn't buy the explosion conveniently killed a Spider-Man and the Jackal, but not Ned Leeds and the other Spider-Man. Yeah given that all of them seem to get caught in it. But, alright, fair enough. The real Peter Parker died, <laughs> according to Michael. Um, yeah, the conclusion is his anticlimactic, isn't it? It's another villain that Spider-Man can't tell the police was a villain, hmm. because it will ruin Professor Warren's reputation. Although I've got no idea how they'll explain why Professor Warren was there. Are they going to justify that? 
yeah. are they going to explain all of this to the police? Or do they not? They should run away. Just Ned and Gwen go away. Yeah. And he gets rid of the body of the other Spider-Man, so they just not mention this. So this explosion at Shea Stadium has no explanation whatsoever, as far as the police are concerned. Apparently not. The gas leak. You reckon? Yeah. Yeah, because Ned's not going to report this story either, as it would ruin his rep as a serious journalist. Clones and all of that stuff. Yeah. It's just not going to work, is it? So essentially, we've got a Green Goblin scenario again. Uh, Spider-Man not being sure if he's the real deal or not is a loose end that Conway should really have tied off much better than he did. Not just for the ramifications, but for closure to this particular storyline. It's interesting that this whole thing with Peter's clone just feels like an afterthought, doesn't it? Yeah. It's an interesting visual to have Spider-Man fight Spider-Man, but there's no reason for Professor Warren to have cloned Peter Parker in the first place. No, he's just there. Yeah, so there's no reason for that to have happened. And they don't f- mention if that means does he know if he's Peter yeah I mean did he clone Peter after he found out Peter was Spider-Man was that a later development they're not terribly clear have you not said how long it took to clone Gwen yeah they've not mentioned how long it took this to happen did it grow over months or weeks or because it's now two years since Gwen died yeah. why did he wait this long to implement his plan if he had a clone of Gwen Stacy that was ready to go after six weeks oh maybe yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't all add up when you start thinking about it, does it? I mean, the fact that this would become a major issue 20 years down the line yeah. is actually quite astonishing when you read the actual story, isn't it? There's not yeah. really that much to it. Leaving Gwen alive is also a huge loose end, but arguably this fulfilled Conway's brief, just bring her back, and having done so, he probably just didn't want to kill her again. MJ for waiting for Peter at the end can be interpreted as Mary Jane coming off second to Gwen again but it's as good an ending as we could expect and all told this was a fun romp a typical slice of 70s Marvel but not perhaps as good a story in and of itself as its reputation would lead us to believe it's a defining story for the character but more for its ramifications rather than for the story itself. And those ramifications have little to do with the writer of this story, or the legacy of the story itself, rather a desire for Marvel to A, dig themselves out of the hole they found themselves in after Mary Jane and Peter's editorially mandated marriage, and B, having seen the success DC were having with Nightfall and the death of Superman, and wanting to do that with Spider-Man. However, that storyline, infamous as it is, is nearly two decades in the future. And there's plenty of fallout from this story in the interim, which we will come to in a moment. What did you think of the conclusion? I thought it was brushed away really quickly. I thought it was quite a disappointment. But after all that build-up... Yeah. Just after all that build-up, you get the fight between Spider-Man and Spider-Man. Which was cool. Yeah. But then you had the bomb, and then Warren going, oh, maybe I'm a good guy. <laughs> and then dying. So his last-minute redemption just didn't work for you? No. Yeah, all right. And it it hindered the conclusion. Although I did like the bit between him not knowing if he's a clone, him saying bye to Gwen, and then him with Mary Jane. And then going home and nailing Mary Jane. Yeah. Which Although, is clearly the implication, though. Yeah, yeah. Does Mary Jane have nothing better to do, though, than to just hang around in Peter's apartment? Yeah, yeah. Or at the Daily Bugle? Yeah. No, apparently not. Well, how's she earning money? Oh, uh, she did go-go dancing. Yeah. Okay, for dues, we now have to mosey on over to the graphic novel. You can go if you want. 
okay. I don't need you for this, but you didn't read any you of this, said, did you? said, just finished Clone Saga, and I did. Yeah, you should have read all of this, dude, because it's important. Anyway, Amazing Spider-Man issue 150 by Archie Goodwin, Gil Kane, Mike Esposito, and Frank Gaia. Koya has Spider-Man, unsure if he is the clone or not, seeking assistance from Kirk Connors. A battle with Spencer Smythe and his Spider Slayers provides a brief diversion, but Spider-Man's love for MJ provides the emotional weight necessary to defeat the Slayer. Spider-Man, realising that a purely emotional response like that wouldn't have occurred in the clone who was in love with Gwen, and this vindicates our hero. He never even looks at the results of the tests, instead choosing to litter New York with them. At local, think global indeed. Again, had Gunwin thought to have the results analysed, the 90s saga could never have happened. But even with Spider-Man tossing them aside, presumably Kirk Connors knew the truth. After all, he would have had to print them out and put them in the envelope in the first place. And he never said, so how's been the clone working out for you in the many meetings they had in between this issue and Amazing Spider-Man 394-ish? I like that his reason for thinking he's not a clone is that I have feelings. Yeah. Clones don't have a soul. <laughs> Everyone knows that. Yeah. Um, it's not so much that, it's that he has feelings for Murray Jane, which the clone wouldn't have. The okay. clone was, well, I'm surmising, because we don't know when Professor Warren made the clone, do we? Yeah. But Spider-Man surmises here that the clone would have feelings for Gwen, rather right. than Murray Jane. But if... The jackal, well, yeah, because that's these memories would only go as far as when the, the sample was taken, wasn't it? So yeah. it still works. That's the that's the the basis for it, hasn't it? Amazing Spider-Man 151 by Len Wein, Ross Andrew and John Romita has Spider-Man dispose of the clone's body in a smokestack. Again, the move that will prove disastrous later and also a little bit of a callous way of Peter getting rid of his own body. Little was heard of the clone saga for years. After all, it was just another story at this point, albeit one that had more than a fair share of loose ends left dangling. Excellent cover to this one, though, by John Romita of Spider-Man being deluged by water in the swamps. I think that's appeared on more than a few t-shirts and posters. A number of these loose ends were addressed in the letters page of Amazing Spider-Man issue 153, cover dated February 1976. So remember, the when did he think, when did he, Peter Parker, when did the Jackal clone Peter Parker and why? Right. And why does Ned Leeds not piece it all together? Remember those two things okay. that I asked you to put a pin in. Entitled Of Jackals and Juxtapositions and written by Roger Silfer, it attempted to address a number of the continuity problems in the story, including exactly when Miles Warren found out that Peter Parker was Spider-Man, which must have bugged other readers as much as it bugged me. According to Silfer's explanations, the Jackal cloned Peter for no good reason at all. He simply felt that Peter must have some connection to Spider-Man and a clone would be able to tell him what that was. So he went to the entire effort of creating a clone of Peter just to be able to say to him, so what do you know about Spider-Man? <laughs> I'm not buying it. Um, apparently he found out that Peter was Spider-Man in the Grizzly issue. The Jackal, suspecting Peter would use the ESU labs to remove the Vibro bracelet, simply waited for him in there and was rewarded by seeing Peter change to Spider-Man. Why Peter's Spider-Sense didn't warn him he was being watched is a plot hole that this essay didn't feel worth mentioning. Uh, no, because he says his Spider-Sense didn't go off for the Jackal because it was Miles Warren. That's not how his Spider-Sense works! That was the line of dialogue given. <laughs> his Spider-Sense warns him of danger... 
to himself or somebody in his immediate vicinity who is close to him. It doesn't tell him what form that danger takes. That was so he <laughs> just goes on the alert. Just because Miles Warren is the jackal, his spider sense would still warn him that there was a threat. Do you tell that to Jerry Collins? Oh, I think I need to at this point. Uh, I also think that this should have been in the story. Yeah. I think that's slightly important and not buried away on a letters page four issues later. Anyway, the reason for Ned not knowing Peter is Spider-Man, despite being right there when the jackal calls him Parker, is, get this, the blindfold that I pointed out to you also covers his ears and stops them from working. (laughs) That was their explanation! Do you, do you think that this was all after the fact? Could be, yeah. Hmm, yeah, I'm getting that as well. Another loose end was tugged upon by Bill Mantlow in Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, issue 25 through 31, cover dated December 1978 through June 1979. Written by Bill Mantlow and drawn by Jim Mooney with a couple of fillings by Frank Miller, this story, which features the great pun-fueled title Carrion, My Wayward Son, centres around new villain The Carrion, whose name should give you a clue as to his origins. Carrion weaves in and out of Peter's life for a few issues, trying to negotiate with Marvel Universe's big crime family, The Magia, and ransacking Peter's apartment and leaving graffiti on his wall, proclaiming, The Dead Walk, Parker! Although his use of punctuation is atrocious. Initially, Spider-Man is busy fighting the masked marauder and the Tri-Man with Daredevil, but once the story kicks in in issue 28, we learn that Carrion is targeting Peter Parker and, at the ESU campus library, he makes his move. Still out of sorts, following the Master Marauder battle. Carrion takes Peter out and moves in for the kill. During the fight, Carrion reveals he knows Peter is Spider-Man and that Peter killed everyone and everything he ever cared about. Carrion is being assisted by a student named Randy Vale, who distracts the White Tiger who is watching over Peter so Carrion can attack Peter again and reveal he holds him responsible for the death of Gwen Stacy and Miles Warren. Carrion reveals information that nobody should be aware of, and he and Spider-Man get into it. Carrion's power of being able to turn people into items of dust means Spidey has to fight a foe he cannot lay a finger on, and, with White Tiger and Veil getting in the way, Carrion defeats Spider-Man and carries him off to Professor Warren's lab, which, oddly, hasn't been touched since he died. ESU presumably has a surfeit of rooms available to them. With Spider-Man tied again to Warren's operating tables, Carrion reveals that he knows all that he knows, because he is the clone of Professor Miles Warren. As he only has Warren's memories up to the moment of cloning, Carrion has no idea that Warren redeemed himself towards the end and still blames Peter for the death of Gwen and now Warren himself. See, when Warren went off to meet Spider-Man at Shea Stadium, he set a clone of himself growing. Without him to stop it aging, the clone continued on to old age and beyond even in death. Randy Vale found the body, and together they discovered that the stay in the clone tank had bestowed upon Carrion the powers of levitation, teleportation, intangibility, and telepathy. Just go with it, because it gets sillier. 
Carrion promised Vale Peter's powers, but instead injected a sample of Peter's irradiated blood into an amoeba that now proposed to attack Peter. Vale, having overheard it all, attacks Carrion, and Carrion kills him, but Vale's weapon discharges a random shot that frees Peter. As Spider-Man, they tackle each other, but the deadly spider amoeba prevents Spider-Man from stopping Carrion, and a fire breaks out. The spider amoeba latches onto Carrion, and they counteract each other's powers, resulting in the spider amoeba killing Carrion, and Spider-Man making a last-ditch leap for freedom. You're sorry you didn't read this now, are you? <laughs> To be fair, this isn't a bad read. It's just awfully silly. Mantlo has far too much going on in the story with Spider-Man and Daredevil fighting Mass Marauder and Spider-Man being blinded and another superhero, the White Tiger, who gets a lot of page time, as well as Mantlo having to juggle the private lives of both Peter Parker and the White Tiger's civilian identity of Hector Alaya. Having too much going on isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the carrion plot is introduced and then forgotten about, and Randy Vale serves no purpose at all. Having carrion being the clone of Miles Warren adds nothing to the original story, but it doesn't take anything away either. And this story could also have been left alone if ignored, if not for what happened next. This is like a farce, isn't it? <laughs> After a number of years, Jerry Conway returned to Marvel to script Spider-Man. And in Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Number 8 from 1988, he got around to addressing the loose end that was Gwen Stacy. Conway stated that it always bugged him that he left a living, breathing Gwen walking around the Marvel U. And in return to Sender, he finally addressed the topic. Drawn by Mark Bagley and Keith Williams, Spider-Man prevents a couple of trigger-happy goons in a souped-up UFO from blasting a young girl off the face of the Earth. The young girl, it turns out, is Gwen Stacy, still rocking the headband. And after 64 pages of stultifying tedium, because this was part of the Evolutionary War crossover, we learn that Professor Miles Warren, a mere university professor, did not, in fact, accomplish the technical miracle of near-instantaneous cloning at all. Rather, he kidnapped a woman of similar height and build to Gwen and then altered her genetic makeup to make her appear to be, for all intents and purposes, Gwen Stacy. It was good enough to fool whatever Dr. Ned Leeds took her to back in Amazing Spider-Man 146, but not good enough to fool the high evolutionary. With her mind and memory restored, the girl leaves, presumably to a family that thought her dead for these past few years, and Spider-Man laments that he never even knew her name. Should have gone to Cheers then, shouldn't he? Everybody knows your name, though. I can see you're glazing over now. Yeah. At the sheer magnitude of yeah. these retcons. I'm suddenly not regretting not reading that much. <laughs> You're suddenly not regretting not reading this evolutionary war issue. So suddenly Gwen Stacy wasn't Gwen Stacy, just a lookalike. No, right. just a lookalike. So the whole bit were her coming out of the cloning chamber. <laughs> yeah, it's great, isn't it? So what about no, the... no, 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 it gets worse, go on. What about the Spider-Man clone? Keep going. What, is he just taking someone who looks exactly like Peter Parker? Exactamon! So, carry on with this train of thought. If Gwen wasn't <laughs> Gwen, who was Peter? Who was Carrion? <laughs> if they've established in this issue that Miles Warren wasn't cloning people, yeah. who were all these people? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> 
The story did successfully tie off the loose end of having Gwen still be around, but created a mess of other problems, not least Conway's once again stating that MJ and Peter knew each other in high school, which they didn't. But that is a minor nitpick. This annual is, quite frankly, a chore to read. The Evolutionary War, what I read of it, was duller than cardboard anyway, and this chapter is no exception. With the focus being on the crossover, the Gwen-Peter-MJ dynamic is seriously shortchanged, and it's a disappointing issue all round. Better it had just been left alone and forgotten about than handled in this half-hearted manner. Although... This did leave a huge question dangling, that if Gwen was never a clone, then what about the Spider-Man clone? And more importantly, what about Carrion? Well done, Michael! (laughs) Jerry Conway was asking the exact same question, along with artist Sal Buscema in Spectacular Spider-Man issue 149, cover dated April of 1989. I did a proper synopsis for this one because it was moderately important. Peter is sniffing around ESU and Professor Warren's old lab, this time sealed off after the fire caused by Carrion. See, the reveal that Gwen isn't and never was a clone got him to thinking. Who was the Spider-Man clone and who was Carrion? The lab is sealed off since the fire and Peter's snooping leads him to a journal hidden under a floorboard. It is the journal of Professor Warren, revealing retroactively that he didn't love Gwen as a daughter, but actually fancied her and wanted her as a lover. Ick. He kidnapped student Joyce Delaney and exposed her to the same formula as Anthony Zerber, a cellular-level transformation that transferred her into Gwen and Zerber into Peter Parker. If Delaney was Gwen and Serba was Parker, then who was Carrion? Returning to ESU, Spider-Man meets another Carrion created via the replicator serum left lying around the lab. Spider-Man fights Carrion without ever learning who he is, and they both end up in the graveyard where Gwen and Warren are buried, and Peter realises that the past would be best left buried as well. Good this, isn't it? So you don't find out anyway. No, oh, well, you do, and I'll cover that in a minute. But Anthony Zerba, <laughs> who we saw being incinerated, yeah. was actually the Peter Parker clone, and there were no clones whatsoever. Maybe the incinerator was the body-changing brainwasher. So, we finally learned who the Spider-Man clone was. It was Anthony Zerba, and the Gwen stuff reveals she was Joyce Delaney. However, none of this jibes with the original story, does it? No. In any way. For one, retconning Warren's relationship with Gwen to that of a would-be lover just makes it seedy. And it just doesn't need to be there. It's unnecessary. Secondly, it's implied that Warren found out Peter was Spider-Man upon cloning him here, but obviously when it was revealed Gwen wasn't a clone at all, this needed fixing as well, so we have this stupid scene of Peter ignoring his Spider-Sense and changing to Spider-Man anyway so that Warren can see him become Spider-Man, which is stupid. Yeah. Very, 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 very stupid. Because it just makes Peter out to be a massive idiot, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, you've not read this, but there you go. Apparently, Professor Warren... So, Jerry Conway didn't read the letters played explanation in (laughs) Amazing Spider-Man 153 that told us how Warren found out he was Spider-Man. So this story makes out that Warren knew he was Peter Parker from the beginning of the Clone Saga, like I originally thought. So the implication there is that Jerry Conway, the writer of that story, knew that Warren knew that Peter was Spider-Man from the beginning, but just forgot to tell us. (sighs) Excellent plan in there. 
Thirdly, this retcon removes Warren's entire reason for becoming the Jackal. He snaps when he kills Anthony Zerba, doesn't he? Yeah. Zerba's not dead, despite <laughs> us clearly seeing Professor Warren incinerate the body. Granted, in flashback, but okay. He's not dead, therefore he's no reason to be the Jackal. Maybe. He got so messed up that he... <laughs> he thought he all killed Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gee, that's even worse. Fourthly... Oh, I'm not finished. Here, Warren mentions the Carrion scenario as if it was all part of his master plan. However, Carrion only came into being in the Bill Mantlo story because the clone was left stewing for too long because Warren died and was unable to return to the cloning chamber. Now, why he wanted a clone of himself in the first place is never explained. That's just glossed over. But the stupidest thing about this, the absolute stupidest thing about this flashback, right? Yeah. He doesn't clone Gwen. He does whatever he does to Joyce Delaney. Strips her nude and puts her in the cloning chamber. But leaves on that headband. People just like the headband. But she's not wearing it when she gets out in the other issue. No, in the original story she wasn't wearing this. But Joyce Delaney wears headbands. That's what made her look like Gwen Stacy and Miles Warren. That goddamn headband. (laughs) 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 This is so laughably (laughs) stupid. Oh, God. Carrion 2 will be revealed in a couple of issues later in Spectacular Spider-Man. To be another Miles to Warren be, clone. No, to be another Miles Warren clone. <laughs> to be Malcolm McBride, a fellow student of Peter's who stumbled upon the virus accidentally. Basically, I think all these retcons ultimately harm the simplicity of the original story, and none of them needed explaining. It didn't matter who the Peter clone was or wasn't. He was dead. And as for having Gwen around, just have her suffer some clone degeneration or just never mention her again. That would have worked, wouldn't it? Yeah. This retcon would itself be retconned in Spectacular Scarlet Spider Unlimited Number 1 when it was later revealed that Joyce Delaney, the lady Warren made think she was Gwen Stacy, was, in actuality, a clone of Gwen. The High Evolutionary, being a well-known practical joker and having nothing better to do with his time, apparently planted fake journals from a humble college professor, which just negates the plot of Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Number 8 completely. It also simultaneously restores Amazing Spider-Man 149 and then immediately retcons it, by establishing that Gwen and Peter clones were not the first clones Warren created by having a scene in which there are a pile of dead clones of Gwen on the floor in his lab. Joyce Delaney will ultimately end up being killed by another clone of Gwen Stercer. Okay. (laughs) Oh, now my brain hurts. So what do you think of all those retcons? Oh, I'm glad I didn't read it. <laughs> the 90s clone saga would pick up on all of this, but there's another podcast out there that covers that called Clone Saga Chronicles. Go and check that out if you so desire. 
And that was how they did it in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. That's worse than how they do it now. It is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's atrocious. Anyway, well, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I actually really had a good time reading all that carrion stuff and all that, well, maybe not the evolutionary war issue, and all that new carrion stuff and all that. I thought it was brilliant because it was just so laughably stupid. At some point you just go, okay, and go along with it. Just stop thinking. <laughs> yeah, just stop thinking about it and just move on. Next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics, with all apologies and due gratitude for letting us steal the title. Mr. Michael Bailey, thank you. Nothing but the 90s. Next week, we'll be looking at Spider-Man issue number one by Todd McFarlane, X-Force number one by Rob Liefeld, and X-Men number one by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee. That'll be fun. Yeah, it's very 90s just by the artist. Oh, yeah. Well, that's why it's the... That's, you lead off yeah. with the pinnacle <laughs> of artistic achievement from that decade. Rob Liefeld. <laughs> We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show has not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com, and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics.